Uh, welcome, Dr. Shaw. We are so happy to have you here. This is our second conversation. The first one was we just felt almost like kindred spirits a little bit, just saying, ah, here's a doctor who thinks like us and is bringing something new to this world that is desperately needed. And so we're really excited about sharing your story and sharing um, a product that you're in development with, with our audience that we think can be a true game changer for our health. So welcome, Dr. Jay Shaw. Thank you so much, uh, Wendy and Debbie. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. And welcome to Nourish Noshes. Welcome to Nourish Noshes. And um, the first thing I think we wanted to do is kick off and just toss this ball to you and ask you what your story is, because it's really quite um, fascinating. Sure. Yeah. And by the way, I love yeah. the name of the of the of the show. That's a great, <laughs> great creative name. So I love it. Um, so yeah, I guess my journey in medicine started like a lot of others, probably um, it, who have gone into medicine as, as a child. You know, uh, thinking about wanting to be a doctor. My my dad was a doctor, uh-huh. and so you know, and we're an immigrant family, and so yeah, I'm first generation American, and. Like many immigrants, um, you know, and many non-immigrants, but you know, looking at being a physician is maybe sort of one of the highest levels of, of sort of career aspirations, and so right. it was always looked at with you know high favor. And so I always thought about it, and I really did enjoy science and biology and those kind of things. And so that's why one thing led to another, and I decided to to try it. And I ended up going to a, a medical school in in Kansas City, University of Missouri in Kansas City, which is a city general hospital. Um, and if you're not familiar with Kansas City, which maybe most people on your show may not be aware of, but it, think think um, South uh, South Chicago, South South Chicago, Compton. Um, this kind of environment, we had you know, a prison wing, we had a full inpatient psychiatric hospital, you know, um, we, it was a very, you know, a lot of um, sort of drugs and, and inner city sort of uh, typical kind of issues. And, but it was actually a really great place to be a medical student, because of their relative lack of resources and staffing. Um, medical students were asked to do many, many more things than wow. oftentimes in larger, very well-resourced institutions. So routinely, you were the first assistant in surgical procedures. Routinely, you were the, you know, the only person who had, you know, medical knowledge in, in, a, in a situation or a room. And, and it was just a very colorful uh, place to, to be a medical student. And so there are many things I really enjoyed about it, despite its sort of um, unfortunate lack of resources in some of the scenarios that, uh, but I, and, and so that was my medical school. And, you know, one thing, you know, by luck or chance or combination thereof, I ended up at Massachusetts General Hospital for um, my uh, internal medicine training. And the best part about that, other than meeting these phenomenal sort of world leaders, you know, um, who were my cohorts in, in residency, uh, was that I met my partner and, and wife there. So that was the best part about going to Mass General. But <laughs> but other than that, um, you know, the 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 people I was training with, you know, on the left on my left hand would be, 
you know, a guy who had invented three molecules and, <sighs> you know, flew to Boston on a private jet from the government of Singapore. And on, right. the, on my right hand would be some <laughs> a lady who started an NGO and ran it for the WHO for the last five years. Well, and all of these future leaders in medicine, you could tell that the the sort of the level of of caliber of those sort of, of you know, of my sort of peers was just in a different stratosphere. And so what a I, direct you, contrast to your medical school. So, it couldn't have been a, more, right? <laughs> such a direct contrast, but but having both experiences yeah. juxtaposed one after the other was yeah. was really amazing. Wow. And so I really enjoyed my time there. I did my cardiology training um back in the Midwest at Washington University. And then I did something very, you know, different for from coming from thousand bed academic medical training institutions. I went to Portland, Oregon and started my own practice from scratch. Wow. So it was, you know, a medical assistant and two EKG machines and me. And that was it. And so that's brave. Just, that's very you know, brave. Very was, brave. It was such a different mentality. In fact, many of my sort of professors and academic mentors kind of looked at me like, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, when I told them that this was my plan, uh, or lack of a plan, just sort of like, this is what I think I want to do. But it was it was a great learning environment. For me, I those first few years of practice are where, honestly where you learn the most as a physician. I mean, because you're on your own and, you know, you're I was building a business, building a practice, building a referral base, building credibility, um, building a patient base, you know, and and in the end, there's no big institution behind you. There's no layers right. of other trainees and the buck stops with you and only you. And so it was very much a different um different uh, sort of journey. And I did that for seven years and I really enjoyed it. That was, you know, one of the best places in my experience to, to practice. Um, and then for the last three years, I've practiced at the Mayo Clinic. Uh, I had this opportunity to come, come down to the Mayo Clinic uh, with my, with my wife and uh, I've served as the medical director of thoracic aortic aneurysm diseases. And so that was again, a very different, um, but very, you know, instructive time. And I really enjoyed that as well. So that was been my sort of medical career. And then the last year and a half, I have kind of taken a 90 degree turn and and I've uh, joined a Swiss startup called Actia, uh, which is working on um, a wearable uh, continuous blood pressure monitor. Um, and so that's really what we've been working on. And uh, we're very excited. We have a significant traction. We can talk all about it, but, but um, that's been a, you know, a, a really an education in and of itself and a marked departure from my 10 plus years now in practice. So that's, that's my story. Yeah. Wow. Well, and that, that story, I think is, you know, leaving and moving into this new space, that, that shift is what really drew us to you and right. why we wanted to bring you on to talk about this shift because in your previous 10 years in your previous life you were on the reactive side you were seeing clients after they had had incidents um and we'll have you describe that but you were on the reactive side and you kept seeing you know you were cleaning up the the messes if you will and you were like this is not 
right something's broken in 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 the process of taking care of ourselves and so so you see this um actia as a part of the solution to not having to end up in the cardiac care unit of a hospital yeah i mean is it, so well said i mean so for 10 years uh and i think that the the two words that that best describe this sort of juxtaposition is reactive and proactive and i think yeah. that that's what you that's what you really mentioned wendy and and you're right so in cardiology and in, in specific you know generally people come to me in in clinic after they've had some problem or when they're having some symptom you know oh i'm having right. chest pain or i'm having trouble breathing or i'm having you know someone told me i had some or i was in the hospital and i had some event and then we do tests and procedures and surgeries if needed and all the things that people are aware of about current sort of general cardiac care. And that's all great. I mean, we need those things and it's great that we have them and it's great that we have all this technology and training and, and resources for that to happen. But at the same time, it is very much a reactive um, process and that most of the underlying causes of a heart disease or stroke or heart attack or heart failure or you name it are chronic and slowly developing processes that have gone on for decades so usually people come to me and oftentimes this very much happens usually after their event surgery procedure hospitalization they come to me back in the office and they'll say dr shah why did this happen to me yeah. And they said, you know, I try to eat well, I try to exercise, you know, and, and many times there isn't some clear answer, but right. the answers plural usually are, well, you know, you, you have, you're a certain age and after a certain age, things happen because we live on this earth for time and our bodies slowly have developed these problems over time. Plus, you know, you've had high blood pressure for a long time, or you've had diabetes or you know, you smoked for 25 years and yet it's great you quit, but you did smoke for 25 years and it takes its toll. And all these things that that are what people generally, generally call risk factors are long-term, chronic, slow, silent disorders yep. that people don't quite realize are actively doing damage until they have the event that you know, causes them pain or discomfort or symptoms or needing a test or procedure or hospitalization. And I think that's the, that's the sort of crux of the problem. And, and there's a lot of reasons for it, but, but that is the way that the medical system has historically and for a long time uh, run. And now, you know, we are approaching, I think, a sort of inflection point in medical care where people, companies, devices, you know, inventors are starting to shift their lens towards how do we do something to prevent some of these complications? How do we make some make things that keep people healthy without you know needing all these other tests and procedures and things? And I think we're we're just perhaps and perhaps too late, but just turning that um, corner. Yeah, I I agree, and I think it's this generation now that's going on right now because. We're, we're more tuned into health, I think, than ever before. And I think what, the word that you use, the silent, that that's huge. And we're so resilient when we're young and we don't feel 
when we're doing things that aren't great for us, we don't necessarily feel ill or we don't feel bad. And so we can do that and continue to do that and not feel it until here we are middle age and all of a sudden these events happen. And, and given that, even sometimes we don't even feel the events. I know some of the right. heart attacks yeah. are sometimes silent as well. Right. So people, it's, we are in a society where if you don't feel it, or if you can't see something right away, you know, it's, it's not there. It's not there, quote, quote. Right. So the idea, though, I think is is becoming more trendy. I don't really want to say that, but it's becoming more trendy to be healthy, to be preventative. I know my kids being the new Gen Z generation, they're so much more in tune with, with mm -hmm. health and preventative stuff. So it, they don't need to be told, oh, you need to do this and do this, do this, right. because they've been hearing it their whole lives. It's, they know it. So, but your, your patients right now and the patients that are future patients, we're hoping they don't get to that point. And that's why you got so excited about this company that you're working for. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, and I think part of those, part of those tailwinds are, some of them are, are not even a medical device or medical technology tailwinds. Just think of things that people now wear routinely or like health trackers or activity trackers or smart watches that do something vaguely that has something to do with health. They may not even be medical devices, right? but they, but they start getting people's consciousness more aware and more activated that they should be thinking about their health in a different way. And then on top of that, like you said, you know, Debbie said, you know, I think, you know, this sort of generational shift, probably starting, you know, from 20 years ago of, of healthier choices, healthier, you know, conscious eating yep. and whole foods and, you know, all these sort of things. And there's all kinds of debates within that, but but generally speaking, there's a there's a cultural awareness of what is healthier and what is not, and people have uh, the, the the great luxury of choice. Not everyone, but a lot of people have the great luxury of choice of choosing better better uh, options. And so, I think those two things combine to really to to what you said is this sort of generational and cultural shift. Yeah, yeah. That that silent um what th that silence i want to go back to that because that's such a key for people because if we aren't measuring something or we don't know or if we don't have an awareness of something we're not going to change our behavior right if, if it's not in front of us if we're not measuring it if, it if we're not reporting if we don't have an accountability partner of some kind and um because Traditionally, blood pressure is, you know, you, you go to the doctor for a checkup and so many people get white coat syndrome. And what, one, of, one of the questions that came to us from our listeners before we got on the phone with you is this idea, and I, I, I don't, I think I know the answer, but I want to hear it from you, is if mm -hmm. I come to see you on a Monday and get my blood pressure taken on Monday, um, might it by, be completely different on Thursday. If I come to see you on Thursday, I mean, the, the, the range could be enough because I'm nervous about coming to see you for some reason, because I've got white coat syndrome. Is that a thing? Yeah, it'll be, it'll be different the hour <laughs> you leave my office. Um, right. So, so 35% of people have what's termed white coat hypertension. And so for your listeners, anyone who's 
not necessarily aware of that term, it means that you go to an office, a physician or provider's office, and you have your blood pressure checked at that one point in time, and it looks high, um, but at home or in an environment outside of the healthcare facility provider's office, it's normal. So for all intents and purposes, for the way that most providers look at blood pressure, which is their office readings, um, it looks high and people can often be given a false diagnosis. And this concept or this sort of phenomenon is called white coat hypertension. You know, in there, there's a white coat standing there or, you know, glowering down at you and you're sort of anxious <laughs> and for whatever reason, and you get this high blood pressure that's really not reflective of your true blood pressure. So, so Wendy, you said correctly. So your blood pressure is a continuously fluctuating parameter, just like many other parameters in our body, like glucose, like heart rate, like, you know, um, all kinds of other parameters. But every minute to minute, hour to hour, it is slowly changing, sometimes mm -hmm. more rapidly than others. And what you what in blood pressure and in hypertension specifically, typically the cuff that everyone is aware of that that's how we measure blood pressure typically gets your blood pressure at one specific point literally one minute or less in time and doesn't tell you anything about what happens before after the next check right and and one of the major gaps in hypertension and blood pressure management is that people generally go for very long intervals in between blood pressure checks so right. you don't know at all what is happening during that time. Right. Could it be normal in this in instance of white coat hypertension? Sure. Could it be markedly abnormal in the instance of someone who has true hypertension and they just think that they have white coat hypertension because they feel right. anxious at the doctor? Right. Absolutely it happens. Or there's even a, a concept called masked hypertension where someone is normal in a physician's office but high at home. Wow. They don't know. Yeah. And and because there are no symptoms with high, with hypertension or blood pressure in general, um, very rarely, at least any symptoms, there's really unless somebody is routinely checking it, they really will have no idea. And the, on the concept of I checked it once and therefore that's my blood pressure level is a completely false concept that's been routinely sort of debunked in academic, you know, studies and stuff so that you know, the idea that just checking it once a year or twice a year and it's normal and then thinking that it's normal all the rest of the time is not an accurate assumption. And so all blood pressure guidelines suggest routinely, especially for people who think they have hypertension or have hypertension, that they need to be very consistent and diligent about checking their blood pressure routinely over time because to try to capture these fluctuations um, much better. Right. Now, so that brings another question that I always have for uh, for my doctor and now for you <laughs> is about the numbers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, of course, there there have to be numbers that people follow. You know, we have we have to have these numbers that are there. But what Wendy and I do with our clients and we say it over and over again is that we're all unique individuals. And so my what's good for me is not good for Wendy and so forth. So I know these numbers come from somewhere scientific. I know that these numbers have been studied over time and but they're also changing. Like they've changed in the last 
several years, just like cholesterol numbers have changed. And so skeptical people, me being one of them, says, oh, they changed the numbers. Now, is that truly true? Or is it because pharmaceutical companies are saying, change the numbers so that you can prescribe more medicines? Mm -hmm. So th this, is my, this is my dilemma. Is, mm -hmm. You tell me, how do they come up with these numbers and how do they account for individuality? So the, the first answer is that generally <laughs> they don't account for individuality. That's kind of the purpose of guidelines is to say, sort of give blanket statements right. to say that for most people, here are the guidelines of where we would target blood pressure. It is the art and job of the provider, physician or provider, healthcare provider, to then take those guidelines specifically they're called guidelines they're not called rules mm -hmm. they're not called laws they're called guidelines to take those guidelines and then to say okay what part about that guideline applies to you debbie do i apply the guideline as it's written do i apply a slightly tweaked guideline because i know you personally and i know that perhaps for you the, we're going to you know target a slightly different blood pressure range that is the job and and really honestly the, the some of the art of being a physician. So that's that part aside though, you're to get to your bigger question, which is where do these guidelines come from and why are the numbers shifting sometimes as we see them that they have over time? And the reality is most of it, most of the shifts in the guidelines have to do with just accumulating knowledge base of science. So if you go back to sort of the advent of hypertension research actually stemmed from FDR, who died, as most people know, with a hemorrhagic stroke with a blood pressure in the 300 over 180 millimeter mercury range. Wow. Yeah. And so I, yeah. after that happened, the um, the government sort of gave, gave a request for proposals for to study hypertension research. And oh, it actually okay. was the primary trigger for several physicians from Boston to set up the Framingham study. So the Framingham study is this landmark cardiovascular yep. outcome study that. that started in 1948, studying a, a group of people who lived in Framingham, Massachusetts over the next 20, 30 plus years. And there've been several right. generational studies that have gone beyond that. And it was the first study ever to show that high blood pressure was bad for you. Before that time, <laughs> We didn't know. And, physicians and that was would, 1940 something? Started in 1948. And was okay. the first publish, publication of hypertension showing a significant cardiovascular risk was in the early 1960s, I believe. Wow. Before that wow. time, many physicians thought the high, there's a reason for the blood pressure to be higher, physiologic reason. And so it actually was good or in some ways responding to your body in some regard. And so the, the Framingham study was the first study to debunk that theory and to definitively show that high blood pressure has been. And that's, that's what, you know, 60 years ago. That's right. it. Yeah. Then there was a group of studies from the Veterans Administration, the VA, where they showed that pharmacologic or medications to lower blood pressure improved outcomes. That was mm. in the 1970s. So only in the 1970s did we even start to consider pharmacologic titration of medications or interventions to lower blood pressure that would actually improve outcomes. Mm. And then in the 80s and 90s, there was a series, a number of medications that were developed by pharmaceutical companies. 
and that have been sold on the market now for 40 plus years. And so that's over time, we see this sort of stair step in knowledge with this sort of accumulating knowledge base based on studies, which generally take five to 10 plus years or long time to show that high blood pressure is bad, to show that treatment is good. And now we're at the point now 2023, but really the guidelines that really shifted the um, blood pressure targets came out in 2018 based on a landmark study called the SPRINT study. And they looked at lowering the blood pressure target by about 10 millimeters of mercury beyond what it was previously, which was 140 over 90, down to right. 130 over 80. And they thought there was enough benefit there. It's highly controversial, um, but they thought there was enough benefit there to make a change in the guidelines. And that's where that change came from. And, right. and so that's how that's how sort of medical guidelines shift. It all based is based on um, you know, the best knowledge at the time that the guidelines are written. And so, you know, that's the truth. And if anyone's wondering about, let's just say, you know, pharmaceutical companies, the vast majority of medications for high blood pressure are generic. So there really is little incentive for any pharmaceutical company at this point yeah. in time to right. really, um, you know, push more medication treatment. Um, but th that's really the the overarching answer why the guidelines shift from time to time. And, and it's, you know, it's a slow and imperfect process, but that's, that's science and that's how it works. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. So on the heels of that, I'm, I, I kind of want to share some stats with people. And the reason is because I think it's, these are stats that I kind of ignore. I don't want to see personally because they're kind of scary. You know, the stats about <laughs> how many people are, are hurting. And one of the stats is that one in five heart attacks are actually silent. And that's that's a really big number. Another number is one person dies every 34 seconds in this country from heart disease, every 34 seconds. And that these numbers are from the CDC. Yep. Now here's some more numbers. 1.4 billion people in the world with hypertension. 130 million in the United States, 20,545 people die every day from hypertension, oh. uh, $370 billion per year. And the control wow. rates in the last decade for hypertension, where we've had cheap generic medications and ready available cuffs has declined right. by 25% in the last decade to a global control rate, ready? 20% of a US control rate of 26%. Yeah. yeah, that's not okay. No, it's not okay. But that's that's the those are numbers that kind of put it in stark reality of how little proactive management or proactive, right. you know, sort of um, impetus there is to really get control of these chronic diseases. Yeah. Yeah. So so what causes high blood pressure? Like, why does that even happen to us? <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Answer, right? <laughs> um, there are there are factors that underlie it. Um, we don't for ninety percent or so of people with hypertension, they have what's called um, primary hypertension, which means there's there's no other underlying cause that we can figure out that mm. is causing their hypertension. For about ten to fifteen, maybe ten to fifteen percent of people, they have what's called secondary hypertension. 
It's a much smaller number. And these are people who have a very clearly reversible cause of their hypertension. So for example, people who drink a case of beer a day or who have severe untreated sleep apnea or who have some severe thyroid problem, that if you correct those problems or treat the sleep apnea or stop drinking the alcohol, their high blood pressure goes away. Right. So, but those are the minority of cases. In the primary mm -hmm. hypertension bucket, the answer truly is the underlying cause for hypertension, we don't know. In yeah, fact, it used to be called idiopathic hypertension. Idiopathic is the medical word for, I don't know. Yeah. So <laughs> the, um, that's, that's the reality. But there yeah. are factors that make it worse, and those we know about, right? So right. this obesity epidemic certainly drives up the prevalence and incidence of hypertension, mm -hmm. you know, um, smoking. There are, you know, chronic diseases such as kidney disease that that relate to an increased uh, incidence of hypertension. Sleep apnea, as I mentioned, can make high blood pressure worse. It's not the underlying cause for a lot of people, but it can make it worse. And so there are many other factors that go into making high blood pressure worse or better. Inactivity is another one, exercise, lack of exercise, of those kind of things. Right. Right. But the actual underlying cause. Yeah. Often unknown. Um, Very interesting. So this this leads us right into because of that, it's that much more important than to have some sort of monitoring to understand the silent epidemic for for these for 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 some of the things that um we don't we don't know. Yeah. So the other part of the high hypertension is that it often starts at young ages and people are just not aware oh, that, that it's right silent, right, right. As, oh. as we said it doesn't cause symptoms and generally oftentimes will start in the 30s and 40s of life wow. um, sometimes even in the 20s and as as one of you mentioned earlier is that people aren't engaged with the healthcare system when they're 20 and 30 year old, right? I mean, you right. don't think there's, you're, there's no reason that you should be going to the physician generally. Right. You don't go- You're immortal. Like, you, you know, <laughs> right. yeah, you're, just, you're, you're really healthy, you're exercising. Right. You do, you know, and so there's not, a, there's not an ingrained consciousness of monitoring your health data. Now, maybe that's changing generationally, but still general, most of the time, that's the case. But that's when high blood pressure often starts. And- the time between when it starts until some event occurs, that's actually the time, the opportunity. That's the time in which you have an opportunity to make changes to prevent that outcome. Mm -hmm. And so your point is exactly right, Wendy, is that you, we have to be able to show people that they have a problem so that they yeah. can interact with that data. They can know, they can become aware, they can become activated they can empower themselves by doing things, whether it's through diet or exercise or talking to coaches like yourself or talking to their physician or talking to a nutritionist or whoever to try to make some of those changes so that they can actually see a change and maybe prevent something in the future. And one of the biggest hurdles to this is that is a lack of engagement on the people's side because of course, the blood pressure cuff generally shows you a digital readout of your blood pressure and that's it like it, there's nothing else to it it's just like here's some numbers no context 
no information, no real like understanding of what that means. Right. People might say, well, how that I checked it today and it means something, but like you said in your example, but on Thursday it was normal. So like, what do I do with this? I'll just put it in the closet and I'll check it again later and then nothing ever <laughs> happens, right? Like that's usually what happens in, in yeah. <laughs> by patients who come to see me. And the reality is, is if you can develop a tool that consistently shows people their blood pressure on a routine basis that is doing it in a passive way that where they don't have to do anything to actually measure their blood pressure, but they get they get exposed to their data and they get exposed to, well, okay, so maybe it's high. Then I did dry January and I saw this significant change. Actually, maybe alcohol is a trigger for my blood pressure and maybe yeah, I need to reduce right. my alcohol. Or I did, yeah. I worked on my diet and I changed it. And then in February and March, I saw a significant improvement. Or, well, I really fell off the wagon in April and look at that, my blood pressure went up again. There's a feedback loop that occurs. Yeah. And we can't do that with symptoms, but we can, you know, at least with, with what we're working on at Actia, we can do that in a digital way, creating sort of a digital feedback loop to really engage and create that activation. And so I think that's 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 probably the best way that I can think of to to do it. Yeah. Well you so you really pretty much just described it, but that's so let's be blatantly clear about it. The product that Actia has is a bracelet to monitor your blood pressure, right? It's and a, yeah. so you mm-hmm. you showed us you showed you you showed us earlier and it's and so people put that on and they don't necessarily have to even pay attention to anything it's and it, it or they can i imagine it's an app on their phone right. where they can check it and right. can they connect that with their doctor tell us how it works absolutely yeah so it's a very yeah. passive experience there is a partly it's a wearable which is a very simple simple bracelet with a simple pod it's nothing complicated in here it's a 10-day battery life and you just wear it that's it and it automatically and passively delivers about 180 to 200 readings a week uh, blood pressure, and you can look at all that data on your on your app. It connects via Bluetooth, and if your healthcare provider or organization, you know, is running our software, automatically the the data automatically flows to them. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to email them. You don't have to sign on to your portal and do all that yeah, nonsense. Cool. It's just it just automatically goes, so they can be pr- part of your team, sort of proactively monitoring with you. And if you need some tweaks in management or interventions, they can actually see how those impact your blood pressure. So we try to solve a lot of the gaps in in what we've been talking about, which is sort of this blood pressure hypertension space. And we think that there's impact at every phase along the continuum of sort of hypertension care from awareness to empowerment and activation to better, more efficient, more accurate diagnosis, better treatment, faster treatment, and more efficient, uh, you know, more efficiently getting people to good optimal ranges and then maintaining those optimal ranges over time. I mean, that's the continuum of blood pressure as I see it as a clinician. And generally, physicians only do it after long after a diagnosis is made, then very slowly treatment, and eventually 26% or so in the US get to control, 74% never get there. So not really working that well, you know, status right. quo. So. <laughs> right. It, go, it circles back to our original conversation in the very beginning about the prevention, knowing before something happens so that you can yeah. get in front of it instead of 
be reactive to it. That's right. Yeah, and that's yeah. that's that's always the answer, you know, to that question that I told you guys in the beginning is that patients ask, what could I have done to prevent this? You know, they're sitting there, they had their heart attack, they've had their treatment, they're doing okay, but they said, what could I have done to prevent this? And unfortunately, the answer is, well, maybe 20 years ago, if you had done X, Y, and Z and really right. maintained those changes over 20 years, that is probably the answer, but it's, and that's a hard answer to give, but yeah. it's the truth. And so, right. you know, right. So start now. <laughs> so yeah, start now. exactly. Yeah. Start now. So this is kind of a silly question because I think I'm answering it by myself by saying like, who, who is this product for? It's pretty much for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, yes. Yes and no. I mean, I, the answer is that yes. There's it. You know, one in two people over the age of uh, of sixty five in the U S. have hypertension. You know, a lot of younger people have it. You know, it's one hundred and thirty million adults. So, yeah, chances are most of us. You know, at least half of us are going to get it. And so, in that regard, it can be done. You know, it, it has value for almost, as I said, in almost every aspect of that sort of journey. And right. even if someone's had an event, then maybe it has more um, immediate impact to you if you've had a cardiac event or a stroke or something like that. But even, you know, for, for people who are who haven't had some event, but they just want to be more empowered with their own data, they want to have be more engaged and they want to understand their data more, then there's clearly um, advantages in that regard. And I guess the other part would be, you know, caregivers. That would be the other, th the other part is that oftentimes especially as people get into um, older age, generally the people that are working with me, at least as a clinician are actually not the patient, but it's their caregiver. Mm, you know, right. it's their, it's their wife, it's their husband, it's their daughter, it's their son, it's whoever it is. And they're the ones who are managing this person's health, generally speaking. And they're the ones who are tasked with trying to get the data and trying to see what their blood pressure is and titrating medicines and figuring all those things out. Um, and so for them, you know, also it's a easier way probably to, to really, you know, keep, they have enough to keep track of really. Um, and so there's another, you know, use for them. Yeah. Is Actia going to be using, or do they get permission from patients to use this data, um, for research for, for everything? I mean, cause I mean, this seems to be really valuable data mm -hmm. for the whole scheme of this right yeah. yes i mean so we we do people can elect to have their de-identified data pooled for research purposes they can yeah. elect of course they don't want it uh, and that's fine either way um but yes uh, most of our users especially in in europe a lot of them do opt in and Good. and and the data that comes from our device i mean just think about the sort of exponentially higher degree of data now yeah. we can create these extremely complex data sets Absolutely. and we're working with researchers across the world to understand, starting to understand real true insights from those data sets, instead of having this historically one size fits all sort of right. treatment for blood pressure, right, right. you know, maybe, you know, Wendy's pattern of blood pressure is different than Debbie's is different than mine. Right. Why is that? And what does those mean? And why, what do these specific patterns mean versus these other types of patterns that we don't know yet? I mean, we, we're just, we just have all this data and we're going now to look and doing all these, you know, real significant outcome studies, uh, cohort studies with investigators all across the world, trying to understand and pick out the insights from that data 
so that eventually our goal is to have personalized um, blood pressure care at scale, you know, for hundreds of millions of people. Great. It really yeah. is a tool that's so needed. So we know that at the time of this recording, you're on the cusp of launching in the United States. Is this correct? Well, it's, it's coming we? soon. Yes, we're we're you know awaiting an FDA decision, and um, and so you know after that, uh, you know, you know, hopefully we'll have access to the U.S. market. Yeah. Great. Okay. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more details. Like, what is the cost to the consumer like where do, where would they get it um it's coming i know it's not quite here yet yeah um but tell, give us those details. generally so in europe how it's working is it buying really just direct from our website that's that's the the primary channel although now there are some um uh sort of enterprise customers including some payers and healthcare providers who are who are providing the 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 devices and software directly to patients but right now, the majority of the of the um, consumers or, or or patients are just buying direct from our website, okay. and that model would exist in the U.S. You know as well. Um, and so we try to try to have as we build our partnerships with healthcare organizations, um, that takes time. But but the but individual users can can have access to the device and the technology right away. Right. Excellent. Did you cover the cost? Did we talk about? Oh, you covered cost. So, yeah. in terms of cost, <laughs> yes, I forgot to mention that one. Um, so, in terms of cost, correcting for currencies, it's about two hundred and nineteen dollars US, um, and that comes with everything. That's a one-time cost. Currently, no subscription with the software, the app, the um, the calibration cuff. There is a cuff that comes with it for calibration purposes, and the bracelet, all in one. Wow. Uh, yeah. All in one box. Yeah. All right. That's really affordable for, for considering what it does. That's a, a, a great affordable option for people, I think. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, you know, traditional blood pressure cuffs are significantly cheaper. You can buy sort of much cheaper ones, but again, they, like you said, they don't really have the functionality that, that all the software and, and the back end that we have is built around. And of course they don't collect the data like, um, right. Like our device yeah. Does. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So the name of the company is Actia, A-C-T-I-A. -A. Actually, it's A-K-T-I-I-A. Gee whiz, I totally watched that. Let's... That's okay. That's good. Just ask the question. Please tell us again how to spell it. A-K-T-I-I-A. Yeah. And it's actia.com. It's the website. You can go on there and you can sign up for updates, um, you know, for the U.S., uh, in anticipation of U.S. launch, and you can go and put it, get on the mailing list there. And we're on all the usual um, social media channels as Actia Global. Okay, great. And when are they expecting to launch in the U.S.? Do they have a date? As soon as well, as soon as we hear back from the FDA. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> all, all, That's all, all you need to say. All we just. Them. We're going to yes. all go like this because yes. all of our listeners are very curious about this. I know. Yes. No, I appreciate that. And, you know, we're yes, all digits are crossed. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that, that is the primary. Um, we're going to do some bird dogs yeah. and all this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Put ourselves into pretzels for you. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, I, I've got a quick, another question from our, our audience that I 
had meant to mention before, what is the impact on of salt? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. on blood pressure because it's so it. I don't know if it's is it a continued myth? Is it true? Like where 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 does salt fi- follow or land? It's kind of half an app. So it's um it's actually it's actually exactly half an app. So there's so we talk about salt all the time when people come in and have high blood pressure. But in truth, only 50% of people are actually salt sensitive, meaning their yeah. blood pressure is 50% of people, uh, if you do reduce their sodium re- uh, content, do have some reduction in the blood pressure. The other 50%, probably not. So there is some debate about that, but that again goes back to this sort of one size fits all yep. talk track right. for hypertension, right? right? Is that I have this sort of, you know, after being in medicine now, cardiology for 10 years, so when I talk about blood pressure, I can sort of off the top of my head, you know, go down the list of the things I need to talk about. And sodium is always one of them. But the truth is probably for half of the people that sodium part of the conversation makes little difference. And we don't know who's sodium sensitive and who isn't. And that is again, getting back to that data set that we collect, we can start to pick out those insights. That's a good example of one where we can, you know, put someone on a low sodium diet for a month, see what happens to their pattern and does it make a difference or not? If it doesn't make a difference, I mean, we're not going to tell that person to just go eat pizza and potato chips all day long. But I would, I would say, well, you know, sodium reduction and paying, you spending your energy and time really focusing on sodium reduction is probably not as high of a value as perhaps going out and exercising more or reducing alcohol content or doing, you know, three other things. So let's be personalized about those recommendations. Right now, we have no way to understand how to be personalized about sodium reduction or for that matter, any of those other um, lifestyle factors. So Um, interesting. So it's not a myth. It's just that it doesn't apply for a significant percentage of people. Right. Yeah. So helpful. Anything else that our listeners would want to hear or anything else you want to share about the body? I think the only other thing that I I would probably want to mention is that, you know, we have historically been, uh, and we mentioned this before, you know, talk about blood pressure as single point measurements in time, right? 130 over 90, 148 over 82, 130. And we've all explored in this conversation how little that matters as compared to sort of achieving over time an optimal range of blood pressure. Well, that concept actually has a name. It's called time and target range or abbreviated TTR, time and target range. It's a concept that has that exists in diabetes for glucose control, meaning that the longer somebody spends in this optimal range, the better their overall risk is for some future event that's tied to blood pressure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, in the diabetes world, that actually has come into clinical practice with the advent of continuous glucose monitors, of CGMs, because for the first time, using those kind of devices, you can actually see their overall trend and actually get a sense of how much time are they spending in the optimal range. Right. So our device, Actia, is a very close parallel to that, except mm-hmm. for blood pressure. Mm-hmm. So we can kind of show that, and we already it's already in the app, we already display it. How much time do you spend in an optimal range? 
And studies have shown over the last few years that that concept, that metric, is a much more powerful predictor of cardiovascular events in the future than just hitting some arbitrary target of 140 over 90 or 130 over 80 at one point in time on one day. And so that is the probably a much more uh, a much better metric to look at blood pressure. But the catch is there is no device currently on the market that can actually measure time and target range, except for ours. Um, and so that is sort of just a, a another aspect of how this sort of data set can really empower a very um, near term change to real clinical care and to real, you know, to, to sort of the way we think about blood pressure in general. And that parallel has already been seen in diabetes, where the whole diabetes, you know, care has shifted to really incorporating this concept of time and target range. And it's a much more logical concept. It's just, it's never really been technologically possible to measure it on a real-time basis. Until now. <laughs> That's great. This is exciting. Very exciting stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah, really it's, is. It's yeah. exciting. We're so happy to have uh, met you and getting this information out into the public. And we just really uh, are all behind you and uh, behind Actia and hoping that Thank you. we all want to help this world be a healthier place. And this is one tool that can help people do that. Yes. Well, I really appreciate uh, you having me on the show. Thank you so much. It's been it's been my pleasure, and you know, happy to come back anytime. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, both of you. Thanks for listening. Keep the conversation going at nourishcoaches.com, and stay tuned for more nourish noshes as we continue our quest to make the world a healthier place.